Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a decision on whether or not the province will pause the reopening of Toronto and Peel is going to be made later on this afternoon with the concern about the variants. Is that what they should do? A new Ipsos poll finds mixed reviews for the federal government's vaccine rollout, and that's narrowing the liberal lead in the polls. Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, joins us to talk about it. And the Supreme Court in the States is still sitting on Donald Trump's tax returns, and justices aren't saying why. It's all coming up to Bill Kelly Podcast. Starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We're waiting for the announcement later on today from the Ford government about uh, what's going to happen with uh, the GTA Peel regions, of course. They are still in lockdown, and they want to stay, well, two of the three want to stay in lockdown mode uh, because of the advice they're getting from their medical officers of health. Uh, it's a pretty stickly situation, but uh, the medical officer of health for Toronto, Dr. Eileen Davila, was uh, pretty adamant about what she said the other day. Today, it is better to delay reopening and stage reopening gradually when we have certainty that the time is right. Better to wait until we know more than to put everyone through the yo-yo of opening, closing, reopening, and closing again and again. So where are we on this? Uh, we've heard different stories, and it's speculative, of course, at this stage as to which way the government's going to rule on this. But are these legitimate concerns that the doctor brought up, and uh, should we be paying heed to it, even if you're outside of the GTA and Peel regions? Joining us is a J.P. Sussie, infectious disease epidemiology Ph.D. student and Vanier Scholar at the University of Toronto. Uh, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us today. Thanks so much for having me on. How is it, it just, uh, it just seems that the longer we go through this, and we're not going to be out of this pandemic thing for quite a while, uh, we're really starting to divide into camps here, but, you know, economic impact versus the medical reality here. Uh, we seem to be on the same page a year or so ago, and I don't know what the factors necessarily are, the fatigue and everything else that we've heard about, but, uh, you know, the Premier has always said that I'm going to listen to the experts about this. Dr. DeVille is an expert, and, and she has some concerns about this, and, and a lot of other people across the province have some concerns about this. What, what, what's your read on what's going on here right now? Well, I certainly understand the frustration. I mean, it seems like it's just one thing after another. Uh, but unfortunately, we, we do have to deal with, with the virus as it, as it is, and, and, and the case uh, that we're dealing with here is, uh, while we do have declining cases overall for now uh, here in Ontario and here in the GTA, uh, there is kind of a, a, a hidden second epidemic, uh, which is uh, these variant cases, which are, in fact, uh, from all that we can tell, uh, and we're getting more and more uh, testing uh, in Ontario and across the country for screening for these variants coming online. Uh, for what, what we can tell, they're growing exponentially under the current conditions that we have. Um, and so once those variants uh, become dominant, and as the old variant of COVID uh, declines, uh, once it takes over, then we're going to see, uh, see the, uh, the overall cases returning to growth, and that would initiate a third wave. And I understand the balance, and I, you and I have talked about this in the past, about how the governments are getting pressure from all sides, and we certainly understand that. But wasn't one of the first things we talked about a year or so ago that the economy is never going to get well until we get rid of this virus, or at least tame it? Yeah, and I think, uh, look, we're in a, a much better place now uh, than we were a year ago in the sense that we have mass vaccination just on the horizon. Um, but I think the question is, uh, as I said, look, we're, we're seeing the, these variant cases uh, spread exponentially. If they can spread exponentially under the lockdown conditions, then, you know, if we really take the brakes off and, and open up things like, you know, indoor dining and, and gyms where, uh, we know that these outbreaks with variants could happen very, very easily. 
um, then it could be the difference between us going into our mass vaccination campaign in March and April uh, under you know a, a new lockdown versus under a mild resurgence. Uh, so I think you know this this vaccination is uh, campaign is the way out. Uh, we have the spring and the summer coming up. Um, I think if we can really slow down the spread of this variant until we get those more favorable climatic conditions uh, in the spring and summer where it's harder for this virus to spread uh, and we can really get that that uh, mass vaccination campaign rolling, uh, then, you know, I think slowing down now as opposed to, uh, you know, taking taking uh, the foot off the gas and then, and then having to snap back into another lockdown, I think ultimately that's going to be better for the health of the people and as well as the economy. What were some of the claims, and and, because there's a lot of back and forth going on in this right now, and there are some people that say, yeah, the numbers are down right across the province. They're even down in the GTA, in fact, as they they are in Peel region as well. But but some of the medical people that are looking at this are saying that those numbers are deceiving. You don't don't get the impression that that this thing is over and that you know the virus is fading away. They said, you know, for instance, I mean, you know, for most of Ontario, of course, we started the the reopening, of course, on on Tuesday of this week, and history has shown us, JP, that every time we do this, there's a spike. Yeah, and I think in this case it's it's different because now we're seeing these these uh, variants, which are more transmissible, become rapidly dominant and thankfully uh, as through most of the pandemic we do kind of have a, a crystal ball here as to what could happen here uh, and that's the case of europe uh, so if we look at uh, what happened in the uk the uk went through their second lockdown uh, in early november uh, they saw cases decline but there was actually a, a hidden a second epidemic happening because that's when the variant the b117 what we're calling the uk variant uh, was really starting to grow, and it was growing all throughout that second lockdown. And so once they came out of that second lockdown, which was in early December, that's when cases really, really, really spiked because that UK variant just took over. Um, and that led, of course, to a third lockdown in the UK, uh, which thankfully has been uh, has been effective at uh, reducing cases, even with uh, the variant, uh, the UK variant taking over. Uh, but of course, um in the case of the UK, they have, you know, a very strict lockdown now. They're not even considering opening schools until uh, late March. Um, and so, you know, they're not, they're certainly not, uh, uh, you know, re- reopening right now, like, like uh, what we're doing here in Ontario. So it, it, it means that these variants can be controlled, but uh, under, you know, much stricter circumstances than what we're considering. How worried are you about these variants? We're hearing so many different stories about them, and uh, some people are just, you know, being dismissive about it and saying, so it's just a variation on the thing we've dealt with, big deal. Uh, but the numbers here are, are, are alarming. We see that it, we're told now that it spreads faster. There's a story, I'm sure you saw yesterday, that said it might even be more deadly. Uh, that's that's out there now, too. And, and not only that, but the variants are hooking up with other variants. I mean, there's a hybrid variant right now that uh, I guess part of a California thing, and then I think it's the, the, the South African thing or something. And uh, so where, does, where is this going? And, and should we be concerned about this morphing to the point where the vaccines that we've just developed may not be as effective as we thought they were going to be? That certainly is a concern. Uh, our vaccines losing efficacy. You know, we know with the uh, what people are calling the the South African variant, there seems to be a little bit less efficacy, and, and certainly there's a possibility that that will uh, that will develop uh, even further in the future. I think that's a problem we can solve with things like booster shots, uh, but uh, certainly we do have to worry about the 
uh, increased transmissibility of these variants uh, right now when we do have so much of our population and, and especially those most vulnerable uh, older adults in the community uh, unvaccinated. I mean, I don't think we can act like, you know, we've, we've protected our, our vulnerable population yet. Uh, I think, you know, a good thing about a potential third wave is, is we're going to see a lot less mortality in long-term care because we, we have now, um, you know, done made a quite a lot of progress of vaccinating people in long-term care. And so that's, that's how, how a third wave would be different. But we still have a, a huge percentage of, of older people in the community that are still vulnerable. Uh, we haven't been as advanced in, in the rollout of our vaccine compared to other countries like uh, the UK, uh, Israel, uh, even the United States. Um, and also, uh, we, we have a, a still a very large number of people in ICU with COVID, uh, and those numbers are, are on the decline. But if we do have a third wave, then they're going to they're gonna start going up again and, and could even reach levels that we, we haven't seen before. Uh, keep in mind that uh, according to the Public Health Agency of Canada, about just under half of people who have been admitted to the ICU with COVID are under the age of 65. And so even if we do manage to vaccinate everyone over the age of 65, there's, uh, there's still a significant risk to people who are, who are younger than that of severe disease. Maybe you could address something else that came up yesterday at the, the, the press conference in Ottawa. Uh, they were talking about the vaccination rollout program. And, I mean, the good news is apparently Pfizer and Moderna are kind of back on track now. And it looks like all the doses we thought we were going to get by springtime, we are going to get. And that, that's good news. But uh, they also talked about the possibility of only giving one dose uh, and doing the other one sometime later. And there's a, a statistic that came out at, at yesterday's meeting, JP, that uh, said that uh, the effectiveness of a first dose is provided up to 80 to 90 percent effectiveness after 10 to 14 days. So therefore, a second dose can come later. Could you explain the efficacy of that? In other words, are they suggesting that that, that first shot when we get it is going to last much, much longer? Because initially they said the second dose was supposed to come, what, four or five weeks later? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a, an evolving situation. I think there, we still need to wait for a little more, uh, a little more evidence, a little more data on on this, um, so I, I won't give any, you know, very specific comments about that. But certainly, our vaccination strategy has to evolve in response to the evidence. Um, you know, initially in Canada, we were we were withholding, um, we were kind of keeping second doses uh, in reserve in a lot of places, mm-hmm. as opposed to getting those first doses and partial protection into as many people in long-term care homes as possible. We realized that, um, you know, having that partial protection. Uh, even if we did have to stretch out those shots a little bit, uh, was was in fact you know going to do the best good or the most good in terms of protecting that those highly vulnerable people. So I think it it does make sense to adapt our our vaccination strategy uh, in accordance with the evidence, but specifically with the you know one dose only. I think uh, I think we still need to wait uh, for some more data on that. Well, cause I, I, I'm getting a little antsy. I'm just a layperson on this, but I mean, you know, with the people that developed this stuff and did the testing, you know, they followed all the protocols before they got the approval. That's Pfizer and, and Moderna so far. They both said two doses, and and they they said here's how you should do it. Uh, is is this really with the, you know the variants coming up and everything else? Is this really the right time to to, to stray from that protocol? Yeah, absolutely. I think you know we should <laughs> as much as possible. Uh, adhere to you know the conditions that these were actually tested under, uh, for sure. Um, and, and so you know, as, as I said, I think we need to we need to kind of wait for more uh, wait for more data before we before we make any uh, any changes that are too radical. Um, in, in terms of in terms of um, you, you mentioned these these um, 
you know, the, the South African variant. I think we do have to be uh, really wary of these stories that we've seen of, of apartment outbreaks uh, related to this variant. We have uh, one in North Bay, Paris Sound. We have one in Mississauga, I believe, um, where, you know, you have large amounts of people becoming infected in, in the same apartment buildings where or condos where it's not really known that there was, you know, some kind of mass contact between these people. And so we do have to, uh, I think, be very concerned about that that possibility, you know, when we have a, a variant that causes uh, North Bay Perry Sound, you mentioned in the same breath as the GTA, you know that something is, uh, something is amiss. Yeah, there's one in Collingwood, Ontario, too, uh, that uh, made the news last week. And I don't, I'm not sure which variant it was, whether it was the original or not, but uh, the, the whole apartment building, I guess, has is, is been impacted by this. So it's, it, it, I guess what it underscores is what we've talked about over the last couple of months anyways. We're, we're learning more about this every day, aren't we? It's not as if we've nailed this and said we know exactly what we're dealing with, because it's, it's, this is a moving target that we've got, we're dealing with here. Absolutely. And I think uh, it really reiterates the important, importance of kind of treating this as an airborne disease. Um, the importance of ventilation. Uh, again, we don't know the the uh, exact circumstances. As far as I'm aware, of these apartment outbreaks are still being investigated. But uh, you know, once once we get into the uh, into the spring and summer, we're going to have a lot a lot easier time uh, dealing with this. Uh, even, even if it's just something as simple as being able to you know open the windows in our apartments and in in schools and, and things like that. Um, and and so I, that's why I think one of the reasons why we should kind of be a little more gradual in uh, in reopening here because the weather very soon will be on our side and uh, we'll have that mass vaccination campaign and I think that's that's a lot better than trying to uh, start that in the midst of a, a raging third wave. But you're, the stuff you brought up here, I think it, it underscores that, as you say, we need to be cognizant of this and wary of this. We've talked about the impact, you know, that the old uh, infrastructure and old buildings can have uh, with our kids going back to school. And of course, there's a lot of schools that, that we're using uh, that, that were built quite a few years ago. <laughs> a lot of apartment buildings built quite a few years ago, too. Uh, or, you know, and some have been converted to condos, some not. But, I mean, the same problems we talked about, as you mentioned, ventilation systems, uh, a number of other things like that come into play there, too. And I, I guess that's another thing that has to be uh, explored before they, they start developing, you know, ideas and say, well, we, we can let the foot off the brake. I, I, I don't hear anybody saying that right now, but you have to, to wonder with some of these things about reopenings and let's do this and then let's do that, that as, as Dr. Davila said, uh, every time we reopen, uh, I'm paraphrasing what she said the other day, uh, it gives a false sense of security to a lot of people that said, aha, the end is near. We've got this thing tamed. We can kind of go back. And that's not the message that I, I think they want to give, but that's the message some people are taking from it. Yeah, certainly not with these more more transmissible variants where we've seen these uh, these mass outbreaks in all sorts of settings uh, related to them. And, you know, I think as you... Um, as you signal that, okay, you know, things are, things are good to go. We're going to see workplaces and, and, uh, and other settings, uh, fill up where we could, uh, we could see more mass outbreaks of these, uh, variant cases. But, um, certainly uh, there's, uh, there's things that are not within the control of, of these medical officers of health, but things like, um, sick leave for, for people who are experiencing, uh, COVID-19 symptoms. Uh, you know, to give them time to get tested or, or to isolate when they're waiting for those test results. Um, that's, you know, this is not within the control of the municipal government. This is within the control of the provincial government. Um, and we know that this has caused uh, trouble in, in Peel because uh, they, there was a study done by, by Peel um, Public Health where 
people were were found to have you know gone gone to work with with COVID symptoms and and sometimes even after they tested COVID positive because I guess there was the difference between uh, you know uh, bringing home a paycheck and not bringing home a paycheck and a lot of people are in that, those circumstances where they just they just you know can't afford to uh, to miss work unfortunately and so certainly this uh, this lockdown is only really part of uh, part of solving that problem. Yeah, for people who may not know, Peel Region has a very uh, aggressive uh, warehousing uh, industry up there. I guess it's because it's not too far from Pearson Airport. Of course, you can just go right up Airport Road. Uh, so there are people working in there. And as you say, the jobs are not well-paying jobs. A lot of them are non-unionized. So if you don't show up at work, you don't get paid. And and that seems to be part of the problem that that needs to be addressed. And you're right, that's not a medical issue. That's a, that's a political issue. And hopefully they'll get the message on that. JP, always great to get your perspective. Thanks for spending some time with us today. It's greatly appreciated. All right. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. J.P. Sousey, of course, uh, infectious disease, epidemiology, Ph.D. student at the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. With uh, the pandemic and a lot of other very, very important issues going on, this is a a very important time for us to get our finger on the pulse of what's happening in the country and how Canadians feel about how their elected officials are performing. That's why it's always uh, a pleasure to talk with the folks at Ipsos. And there is a new poll uh, that Ipsos has done for Global News that finds, well, mixed reviews for the federal government. Global's Jeff Smith reports. Justin Trudeau's Liberals have slipped three points to 33% of decided voters, while Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives are up 1% to 30%. Jagmeet Singh's NDP has gained 1% to 20%, while the Greens, led by Annamie Paul, are unchanged at 8 54% approve of the Prime Minister's response to the pandemic. That's six points lower than last month, while the approval rating for Trudeau's vaccination effort is a 50-50 split. Those approval ratings are highest in Atlantic Canada and lowest in Alberta. And while the equivalent approval ratings for premiers are higher across the board, those approval levels are again strongest in eastern Canada and weakest in Alberta. 1,000 Canadian adults were surveyed between February 8th and 10th. Jeff Smith, Global News. Boy, that tells a whole lot about uh, a lot of things going on in different parts of the country. Uh, Pleased to welcome Daryl Brooker, CEO of Ipsos uh, Public Affairs, back to the program to dissect all this for us. Daryl, thanks for the time. Good to have you back with us again today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. We, I guess, knew that this was going to happen, and this probably reaffirms, I think, what a lot of us have been noticing over the last little while. Uh, with every vaccine delay, with every you know daily thing about, well, we're going to get this done, and here's the numbers, and we're, this is all going to go away, and we're going to be in good shape by the end of the summer. Uh, Popularity is going down. They're not buying the message anymore. Yeah, and that's what the polling shows, that uh, very few of us, actually, I shouldn't say very few, it's like 43%, actually think the government's able going to be able to deliver on its... Uh, its commitment to uh, have 3 million vaccinated by the end of uh, March and all of us vaccinated who, who want to be vaccinated by the end of September. Uh, the, you know, the, the sand is slipping out of the sand dial. And I guess what frustrates an awful lot of people, this is what I'm hearing on the show, is is they're staying stuck to that message. I mean, they haven't said, okay, maybe we need to revise this a little bit. Uh, the, the Prime Minister is still saying anybody who wants one is going to get one by the end of the summer, essentially, or the end of September. I mean, even in the States, President Biden has kind of backtracked a little bit. When he did his town hall earlier this week, he told that little girl, he said, you know, maybe by Christmas time things are going to start to get back to, to some sense of normalcy. Uh, and, and that was a little more candid. I don't know if it's right or not. But, I mean, for us to stick with this and say, you know, everything's fine here, and we know it's not because we're not getting the vaccines on time, I, I think we're, you know, waiting to say, okay, what are these guys going to fess up and say we have to, to recalibrate? Uh, they've never really shown a, any predilection to ever doing that on anything. 
you know, the, the communications out of Ottawa seem to be, you know, message track, stay on it, keep saying it, and maybe people will get worn out. But, and it has worked for them in the past. But the problem that they're dealing with right now is a hyper level of attention among the public on this. So the entire pandemic has now become about vaccines and shutdowns and trying to find a way to return to normal life. So people are watching everything that relates to the number of cases per day, for example, through to the number of people being vaccinated like hawks. So you can't spin them. You can't hold a press conference in Ottawa and say, you know, these are reasonable expectations and we're going to stick with them, even when people feel that they're no longer reasonable. And particularly when they're watching the news from other places like the UK and especially the United States, saying that a lot of progress is being made. People aren't fools. It doesn't add up. Well, and the other element, too, is... Is, is you're right. This, this, and this is what we always talk about about politicians. And you know, well, how does the public perceive them? If it hits home with that individual in that community, it's important. Uh, I mean, there are an awful lot of people that, and you, you and I talked about this over the last number of months, that didn't really give a damn about SNC-Lavalin, and they didn't even care about the wee scandal. Like, yeah, well, all politicians are like that, but it didn't really impact my life. This is life and death. This is going to impact everybody. Uh, for the, the 73 or 74% of the Canadians that already say, yeah, I want to be inoculated, they're saying, you guys are screwing this up, and, and people don't forget that. Yeah, and, and this this is the, the peril that they find themselves in, which is, why a spring election looks pretty unlikely. And frankly, they're, they're kind of betting their whole administration on the fact that they'll be able to turn this around. Hopefully, they know something that we don't know, and, and, and the public doesn't quite believe that they'll actually be able to do this. Uh, but the, the, the strange thing here is that they've set this uh, set of parameters, you know, March and September, and said, okay, we've established our own report card. And we're, we're going to go based on that. But the problem that they've got is the report cards actually being established by what's happening in other places. So even if the government's able to deliver what it says it's going to be delivering by September, will Canadians be satisfied? Doubtful. Yeah, it, you can't look at your own one loss record and, and, and without looking at the standings, right? <laughs> uh, you know, and, and we were 37th or 38th, I think, the last time I saw when it came to the vaccine efficiency. And, and at the beginning of this whole exercise, I mean, we were told anyway that we were close, if not right at the top, with the number of vaccines uh, that we had already purchased or, you know, we're expecting to get anyway. So uh, when you set the bar that high, Daryl, you've seen this happen how many generations now? Uh, you set it that high and you don't attain that, uh, you're, you're, you're really, you know, you're putting yourself right in the, by the trap door and you're ready to pull the lever. Right. And, and what I should say, though, is that Canadians want them to succeed. Sure. They really want them to succeed, which is why you see the prime minister's approval level remains relatively high. I mean, in, on managing the pandemic, I think it's in the mid-50s, and, and uh, managing vaccines, it's around, it's around 50. If he had those kind of numbers going into the last election campaign, he would have been laughing. It would have been an easy majority. So his, his personal approval numbers are still pretty strong. Canadians are listening to them, listening to the prime minister in particular, but they're getting frustrated because they, they can't see the type of progress that the prime minister is suggesting happening in their lives, their social circles, their families. I ask, you know, people on listening to this, this show, how many of them actually know somebody who's received two shots? I mean, we're not we're not seeing it. We're not getting out of our houses. We don't feel like we're making the kind of progress we need to make, which is even though they want the, the government to succeed with this because we all win if they do, uh, they're skeptical. 
And and the heat's just not on. And the the, the federal government here, of course, you, you broke this down into the provinces as well. And uh, not surprisingly, Jason Kenney has a failing grade of 42%. I mean, I've got relatives out in Alberta right now, and uh, he's, he's not a real popular guy uh, for a variety of reasons, but this is certainly one of them right now because uh, there's, a, there's an individual rollout here, but there seems to be a pretty high approval rating in the, uh, the Maritimes. Yeah, provincial premiers are doing, you know, 10 points or better than the prime minister in most provinces. So even in Alberta that you just mentioned, Jason T- uh, Kenney may be at 42, but the prime minister is at 33. Um, in in Ontario, uh, the prime minister is at fifty seven, but uh, but Doug Ford's at sixty five. So every jurisdiction that we we looked at, the premier is doing better than the prime minister is doing. And the problem, of course, is that there's one specific aspect of this that the, the prime minister owns exclusively, and that's the attaining of vaccines. And that's what we're finding people uh, saying that the, the government's level of credibility on this is starting to decline. Which is why you've got some of the premiers. Pallister comes to mind right off the bat that say maybe you know we'll just, just we're going to buy our own. We're going to jump the queue here. I don't know if that's going to work out, but I mean, there's always the perception here of, of, of political leaders being at the front of the parade and trying to do something, even if you're not getting it done. Uh, if you if you're showing that hey, I'm trying to do something, I'm, I'm I'll pivot if I have to to get this done and that done, and and that's what I've heard from a lot of the premiers right now. And I think that's probably why the people are, are giving them a bit of a pass, with the exception of Kenny, obviously. But there's a lot more play there than than just the uh, the pandemic when it comes to this but uh you know be there you know don't don't head down to cancun for a couple of days or anything like that be there be on camera uh and because just about all of them i guess uh, they do these daily briefings don't they yeah they do and and uh it really is kind of an emergency broadcast type of situation yeah. right canadians are watching the, the daily numbers like hawks i know here in my house uh you know my my family every day is looking at the number of cases in the city of toronto to decide whether or not we're we're actually making progress i mean and that's unprecedented in in you know modern canadian political history normally people are so overwhelmed by information they, they really don't know what to pay attention to which is why the government governments tend to get on this very um, you know, very precise type of message track where they repeat the same thing over and over and over again, assuming that nobody's ever going to check it and they're just going to believe them. We're in a different environment right now where people are looking at the data and they're coming to their own conclusions and they're now asking questions about what they're being told. I'm glad when you uh, guys did your polling for this particular one here that you also included the potential for an election, the popularity, uh, and, and who people are inclined to vote for because the two uh, are very, very much tied together, aren't they? Yeah, and it, but it, this really does underscore the problem for the opposition as well, which is we're now in an era in which the opposition parties can't do what they would normally do to hold the government to account. They can't sit in Parliament, question periods, a shadow of it, you know, what it, what it formerly was. When was the last time you saw an opposition party lead the news on anything? I mean, it's, unless they're getting into trouble for some sort of a scandal or anything. Uh, so we're, it's a very, very difficult situation for them uh, to, to punch through and present themselves as alternatives to the government. So everything that's happening to the government right now, everything that's happening to the federal levels, is a product of their of, of what people are thinking of them, as opposed to what they're thinking of the alternatives. But when you see the the, the discontent, I guess is is one word we could use here nationally about this. I I, I got to figure that the conservatives and, and the folks in Aaron O'Toole's office are thinking this is a chance for us to make some gains. He has up one point, uh, but uh, you know. They're, they're not really getting ahead. I mean, and, and the same thing with the NDP. They're up one point as well. But anybody who's expecting a huge sea change here, it's not really happening. Not yet, anyway. Yeah, the Conservatives have not really led in the polls consistently since 
before the 200, 2015 election. Not once. I mean, there might have been a couple of uh, months where they may have bumped ahead by a little bit, but they haven't been able to establish a sustained period of lead under either uh, of the last two leaders, their current leader or the previous leader, through the entire um, uh, entire period of time. They did outpoint the Liberal Party in the uh, at, at the end of the day in the last election. They won by almost uh, a point and a half, but uh, consistently in the polling, no, they haven't. They haven't really been able to. Uh, to break out, and you know, the one card that you can play as a, as a, as an opposition party or even as a governing party uh, to to try and get people to reevaluate the the options you're putting before them is to change your leader, which the conservatives have already done. Uh, and they started the ad campaign. I'm sure people have seen the TV ads over the last couple of weeks uh, with he walking down the, uh, I guess that's the, the shores of the Rideau, uh, River, just outside of, downtown Ottawa anyway. Uh, and kind of an introduction, good to meet you, that sort of thing. But it's it's got to be difficult, though, to, to try to make up a, a, a margin like that, though, Daryl, because, you know, you, you as opposition, you want to criticize the government. But if you criticize the government about the spending, for, specifically during the pandemic, the, 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 the easy softball the government's going to come back with is, oh, you don't want us to have, assist people anymore? Is that what you're saying? You, know, you, you want us to cut back on these programs? I mean, you, you have to be careful about that. You could be hoisted upon your own petard if you don't, wanted to get too critical. Yeah, and, and, you know, make it about values and, you know, hidden agendas and all that kind of stuff, which is, you know, we've, we've all been through this. This is a typical, you know, liberal campaign, which is uh, we marginalize the NDP, the NDP by terrifying people about the Tories and hopefully the progressive vote unites behind us, which is, you know, a very effective type of campaign. Uh, and uh, in, in this particular instance, the NDP needs to do better than it's doing. It can't get any traction. And the Conservatives need to do better than they're doing, and they can't get any traction. So the, the next election will absolutely be a referendum on the government and its performance on um, managing the pandemic and increasingly the question of vaccines. And uh, the, uh, the government will live or die based on that. You also talked about regional uh, popularity here, and, and that's very important. It has been for the last however many elections. Uh, and the Liberals, I guess, still have a lead in Atlantic Canada. They still have a lead in Ontario, uh, but they're not winning in Quebec, and, and that's got to be troublesome for the Liberals at this stage. It completely eliminates the prospect of a spring election. Unless they yeah. can get a, a lead in Quebec, uh, they are going to lose seats to the Bloc Québécois, and they cannot afford to do that. Uh, all that has to happen, and you know, I, I tell this to people all the time, so I might as well tell your listeners: if if, Aaron, if uh, Andrew Scheer had won five more points in the 905 in the last election, uh, he would have he would he would be prime minister. Now, granted, mm-hmm. you know, things can happen in the House and coalitions and stuff, but he he would have become prime minister. That's how close this is. If the Liberals are behind in Quebec, they cannot afford to lose any seats because the potential is that Aaron O'Toole, given that he's from Ontario and he's a 905. Uh, uh, a member of parliament, that he's going to pick up some seats in Ontario. And there's no other place where the Liberals can make up that number of seats anywhere in the country. They have to be able to at least hold even in Quebec, where they're losing, and they have to be able to hold on to what uh, they have in, in, in Ontario right now, which they seem to sort of be, but it's, it's definitely in peril. It's right on the knife's edge. 
and I know people in the Western provinces hate to hear this, but I mean, the liberal strategy has been, and will be whenever this next election happens, is they have to get what they're going to get by the time they hit the Manitoba border. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. You know, there's, there's a handful of seats in British Columbia, yeah, but, uh, you know, Manitoba's going to be problematic, uh, Saskatchewan and Alberta, forget about it. So, you know, it, that's why the Atlantic provinces, uh, Ontario, but especially Quebec, uh, when liberals have had majority governments, I mean, they've been ahead in Quebec. That's really what sells it, isn't it? Well, it's the old Laurentian way of winning a, a national yeah. election, which is you winning, you winning, you win the most seats in the province of Quebec, and then you take as many as you can possibly get in the province of Ontario, um, and that's how they win. And and uh, uh, the Liberal Party wins. And and right now, that doesn't look like it's happening for them. And so, as a result, the likelihood that they will have an election anytime soon is is getting uh, further and further in the rearview mirror. Now, if they're able to, you know, deliver some sort of miracle on vaccines, and all of a sudden we're all, you know, uh, coming out of our homes into the bright sunshine, and we're all, you know, going to baseball games and going out to restaurants, and everything's back on track, and you know, they can claim credit for that, then that may change. But right now, that's not what we're looking at. And, and despite what we hear from people like Blanchett and others, there's no way any opposition party is going to, you know, bring the government down or even try to at this stage. Well, as long as the NDP is prepared to roll over um, every time the government comes in with a, you know, a, a, a bill, say for example, a budget that uh, uh, that would generate a confidence motion, uh, no, they won't go. And, and this is the the thing about where the Liberals are right now; they basically have a minority majority. They have to get all of the all of three of the major op- or four of the major opposition parties. Um, all they need is one of them to, to side with the government, and, and they're able to carry you know, important legislation like, uh, like, like, their, uh, like the budget. So as long as the NDP is prepared to uh, uh, come on side with, the, um, with the, uh, the Liberal Party, there's no possibility you're going to have an election, unless the Liberal government decides that it wants to, uh, it wants to call one itself, which, by the way, would re- require it to, uh, to, to break the Canada Elections Act. So it's going to have to come up with a pretty good justification. But to your point, the NDP are really the only potential dance partner here now. Blanchette really, notwithstanding what he said after the last election, that he'll be open-minded, I, I think he's pretty much offside now, isn't he, with just about everything? Well, as long as the Bloc Québécois has a fairly substantial lead in the yeah. uh, in uh, in the province of Quebec, uh, they absolutely want to have an election as soon as they can have one. Uh, whereas uh, the, the Liberal Party uh, definitely wouldn't want to put themselves in that situation. I mean, you could see a circumstance where... The Liberals drop down into the 20s, and the NDP rises up to say 22, 23, which would be the second, you know, would be among the strongest performances they've ever had in their history. In that circumstance, um, uh, Singh may be tempted to uh, to vote against the government, and the government could fall. But uh, we're not seeing that at the moment. Always great to get your insight into this, uh, and, and, and let's face it, I know it's only a snapshot in time, but just about every time we do this, it matters, because there's something happening almost every day now that's going to have an impact on these. Thanks so much for this, Daryl. Have a great weekend. You too. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Daryl Burker, CEO of uh, Ipsos Public Affairs, uh, with their latest polling, which they do on a regular basis, by the way. Somebody was just asking, about, you know, how come they're doing it now? They do it every, just about every two weeks, uh, just to get an idea as to where Canadians are and what thinking about the way the government is performing. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. U.S. politics, well, is in just incredible stuff that's going on there on a daily basis, of course. But one thing that kind of got lost, uh, shoved to the back burner, is Donald Trump's taxes. It was a big deal, of course 
course, uh, during the time that he ran for president, always said, you know, I'll, I'll give the taxes of what I'm being audited, which was BS, by the way. We all know that to be the case. It was another big issue, of course, during the election campaign, because he basically said that, uh, you know, he already cut a deal with the IRS, which apparently was also not true. Uh, got to the point, as you may recall, where Joe Biden actually called him out on this. He's been saying this for four years. Show us. Just show us. Stop playing around. You've been saying for four years you're going to release your taxes. Nobody knows, Mr. President. What they do know is you're not paying your taxes or you're paying taxes that are so low. When last time he said what he paid, he said, I only pay that little because I'm smart. I know how to game the system. Come on. That was uh, during the uh, the presidential debates, of course. Uh, but there is another side to this, of course, and that is the potential for criminal charges because of uh, tax evasion. These are the allegations that are made. It's all happening in the Southern District of New York, and you know, Cyrus Vance Jr., of course, is, is the prosecutor there. Uh, they petitioned the Supreme Court to get these records a, a long, long time ago, and nothing has happened, which is unusual for the Supreme Court. They usually act pretty quickly on matters of this importance. So what is it? Is it political? The Supreme Court's not supposed to be political, but a lot of folks are asking those questions. Elliot Tepper joins us. Elliot, of course, is the Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University, majoring, of course, and featuring uh, United States politics, which has kept you pretty busy for the last four and a half years, especially, I guess. Elliot, hope you're doing well these days. Keeps me up at night sometimes. Yeah, no kidding. So. <laughs> I'm doing fine. I hope it's the same for you and all the listeners. You hope so, too. Uh, this is a variation on a new story. Uh, Cyrus Vance, of course, made a, a lot of headlines. Of course, he's prosecuted a number of people in New York. And uh, one of the things that, that people will always need to make the distinction about here, Elliot, is state charges versus federal charges uh, in situations like this. Uh, this is a tax evasion charge. And, and you know, the, the foundation for this, of course, is the fact that Trump doesn't want to tell anybody about these taxes. Uh, so it has gone into the courts. Why, why the delay here? I mean, why, why are these people moving on something like this? <laughs> The Supreme Court is now in the interesting situation, Bill, of being accused of playing politics no matter which way it goes. It has been extraordinarily silent on this issue uh, for a very long time. There's a tangled political history, legal history leading up to it with lower courts saying one thing and the Supreme Court saying, well, we'll wait for them. And then Cyrus Vance, as you point out, at the federal level, uh, has said we need these as part of a broader investigation of tax fraud. And of course, tax fraud is a very serious issue. Uh, there's uh, incidentally just a reminder that that's not the only place that the tax issue and fraud issues is in play, because mm-hmm. at the state level, uh, Letitia James, the attorney general, is also after Trump's uh, all of his financials over the Trump Foundation. So there's there's multiple legal uh, sources after these tax, all the tax, financial information, really, tax information included, but it's much broader than that. They want a picture of these finances to see how they are. The Supreme Court uh, said, well, let's wait. The lower courts are still dealing with this a bit. And Cyrus Vance at that point said, okay, I'll wait for that. But now that's happened, and the Supreme Court is still saying nothing. So the question now is, why are they saying nothing? Public speculation is. Keeping in mind what the Supreme Court does is totally out of the public view. Uh, they like to, uh, uh, the word opaque seems to fit the Supreme Court pretty well. So that's basically uh, the speculation is that Chief Justice John Roberts doesn't really want to drag his court into this, and he's got a divided court. 
that if, if it does go ahead, then the uh, fissures within the court will come to play. We already know that at least two of the justices, and it's not the two you might think of, will automatically support Donald Trump in this case, as they have in others, and that's uh, Justices uh, Thomas and Alito. So the three new appointees by Donald Trump uh, have not even uh, visibly come into play on this. So the speculation is, Bill, that uh, Roberts is playing for time, that he does not want to reveal how political his court has become, and he no longer is the swing vote. He can be outvoted even if he votes with the three people remaining on the liberal wing of the court. But Justice Roberts has always maintained, and I, I think with some pride, that he says we don't have Democratic judges or Republican judges. You know, we have people that, that you know, work in the Supreme Court. There's no political affiliation here. There's no political bias here. And he's, he's mentioned that time and time again. And, and frankly, some of the decisions they've come out with recently seem to substantiate that. Uh, you know, the, 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 well, of course, the 7-2 verdict, actually, uh, I guess it was last year, that basically said a sitting president can be prosecuted, uh, with much to the chagrin of Donald Trump. Of course, nothing ever happened to that yet. Uh, also, they sided with them when it came to all these 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 motions that were coming forward about uh, you know irregularities in the election. Uh, everybody thought that the Trump appointees were going to swing it towards Donald Trump. They didn't in in any of those situations. So I think a lot of folks thought, hey, maybe maybe all this stuff about him stacking the court doesn't really much matter at all. But on this very important issue somebody's holding it up and obviously roberts is, as the chief justice is the one that's going to get blamed for this but is it because he knows how divisive this is going to be not just for the court but for the country on the issue of the election donald trump clearly had announced that his strategy was to to challenge the states and then to get it into supreme court and that his three appointees would swing it to him and given the given the election given the presidency so the silence actually by the supreme court um I think has perhaps been misinterpreted a bit. The silence of the Supreme Court on this meant they, want, they didn't want to deal with it. They ducked it. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think there was huge relief, with my guess is, within the court, particularly by Chief Justice Roberts. He's been given a lot of credit for being an institutionalist. Uh, he wants to preserve the integrity of the court. But remember that almost always it's, it's five to four, and now it would be <laughs> six to three. Uh, he almost always sides with the conservative, i.e. the Trump component mm -hmm. uh, of any challenge that comes forward. But he's delicately negotiated this one. Another thing to mention about John Roberts is he presided over the very first impeachment trial of Donald Trump. He, right. he sat and listened because he was presiding at all the evidence saying that Donald Trump violated the Constitution in order to uh, in order to swing the election in his direction. Uh, he heard that evidence. The, we know the outcome of the political decision in the Senate at that point, but we don't know what he would have said. Yeah, he was pretty quiet through the whole thing, and, and that was the expectation, too, that he just wasn't going to get involved in this. He wasn't going to roll around in the mud with the, the Mitch McConnells and others. But on this particular situation, uh, how difficult is it going to be to make a ruling on this? I mean, this is this is really a matter of exposing records. I mean, if you know, if if the, this, there was a motion before the Supreme Court right now for, you know, pick a citizen, uh, anybody, uh, to have their tax record. I mean, it's against the law to withhold taxes. It's a tax frauds against the law too. You'd think this, the court would be relishing the idea to to render a verdict on this because right now, this is Donald Trump's citizen, not Donald Trump the president. Yes, that was precisely what got 
Donald Trump um, was claiming protection for his lawyers. Let's back up a bit. Remember that Donald Trump's entire career has been, in part, predicated on the fact that he paid a lot of money to lawyers and he would get his way using the, the courts or the threat to sue or the threat to tie people up in courts, to the threat to delay things so long it would be costly. So uh, lawfare has been a, a, a central pillar of his advancement in, in business and now, of course, in politics as well. So he's used to this. The issue now of whether the Supreme Court will or will not take this up is, is entirely up to the court. It, it's no longer... Um, it's no longer a case of, well, we have to wait for this, we have to wait for that. Uh, the, those, those avenues appear to be closed. Keep in mind, I'm a political scientist, not a lawyer, but what, it, mm-hmm. what, his law, what his legal team is now saying is, okay, court, if you do want to take this up, we still have other avenues to ensure, because there's some maneuvers they can do, they can ask for some other kinds of testimony, that it will take a minimum of another year to get any decision on this particular case. Whether that's factoring into why the Supreme Court is not taking it up more expeditiously, we don't know. Again, this is entirely in the court's purview. But it does seem as if John Roberts simply does not want... He's taking... He's, as I said, it's going to be interpreted politically no matter what. If he keeps sitting on this, well then it's really in favor of Trump. If they take it up, Trump might well lose. and uh, Or it'll be such a split decision and one that history, legal history will show was an incorrect decision because the Republican majority, Republican appointed a majority, and that means in this case specifically Trump appointed people. They've gotten off the hook uh, lately, but they would go on record and this is, the suspicion is they would go on record to support him. So it could be they are saying, hey, don't, don't let us have to go on record. We don't know, but it's entirely possible that the most recent appointment, in particular uh, Amy Kona Barrett, uh, she may not want to be put in position as one of her first major acts in American history to say, oh, yeah, we're letting this, this guy who's pretty clearly crooked, according to most interpretations, According to, to the lawyers bringing that to us, uh, she may not want to go on record either. But these are lifetime appointments. In other words, oh, you know, yeah. even if even if Republicans don't like what they do, if, if in fact they were to go down that road, uh, it's inconsequential. I mean, she's there for life. Uh, you know, Kavanaugh's there for life. I mean, these, these are people that are untouchable as far as that goes. And apparently, I guess so is Donald Trump for that matter. But I guess what galls a lot of people, though, Elliot, is the charges that are being investigated here when Donald Trump was citizen Trump, and now he's citizen Trump once again. So the the fact that he was in the White House for four years is almost inconsequential to the charges that they're trying to investigate. And, and as you've talked about in the past with us, there's a grand jury in New York waiting for this decision because they can't get their work done until they get that information. Yes. Uh, the, uh, boy, there's so much to say on this. Keep in mind that Donald Trump has said this has already been litigated, in the court of public opinion, Kellyanne Conway came out right after the election and saying, said, no, he doesn't plan to now that he's president release his taxes because that was part of the campaign. Therefore, since he won, the public has made its choice. Uh, nobody cares about this. But, of course, the courts do. Uh, tucked into this, by the way, the broader inquiry into financial impropriety. Uh, the, the taxes is just one component of a broader case. 
tax fraud itself is a very serious charge. But beyond that, there's also the the charge of campaign interference, as we know, mm-hmm. uh, and that's part of the broader case by Vance, that uh, payment to uh, people with whom he had sex during the campaign to shut them up so they would not talk, so the, a porn star and a, and a playboy bunny, uh, that would be considered campaign uh, fraud as well. So well but even on that point, though, Elliot, he, he's candidate Trump, not President Trump at that point. And, and what correct. Kellyanne Conway said was actually splitting hairs. Uh, nobody, Cyrus Vance Jr., is not asking for these things to be made public. They're asking for them to be made available to the, to the grand jury. That's all he's asking for. They're not going to be on the front page of the New York Times next week. Beyond that, uh, yes, I'm trying to suggest that there's broader issues involved, very specific issues, because tax fraud can land you in jail. Sure. Or or you have to pay a huge financial penalty. He's got, we know he's got very major bills coming. But beyond that, there's other issues not being talked about, which is national national security in one way. Some of these loans were from foreign banks. Mm -hmm. Was, Was he, as president, indebted to foreign sources of funding that uh, he's not not willing to reveal and he's fighting very hard to keep out of the courts so there's many dimensions to this story well there are and i wish we had another hour and a half or so to do that because you're right i mean you want to get into the financial end of things there's the deutsche bank uh, involvement in this and and they've given some materials but not enough obviously uh there's the the russian implications and and there seems to be some strong evidence and allegations that a lot of that money was from oligarchs, if not from the, the government of Russia itself. But the only way to substantiate that is to start looking at those tax records. And that's so I understand the, the, the reason why they're doing this. Uh, and, and the fact that the court is basically holding this up right now, I, I really think really substantiates the, the, the concern a lot of people had uh, with the three Trump appointees on the court, because that's really what has swung this right now. And uh, I, I don't know. It just, it, and again, just I, as. as an observer to this that wants to see justice done. The old idea about you know justice denied is justice, or justice delayed is justice delayed. Denied. Is justice denied. Uh, you know we miss RBG more and more every day when crap like this happens. <laughs> Elliot, we'll stay in touch with this. More to come on this, as they say in the business. Thank you so much for this today. Appreciate well, it. You're very welcome, Bill. Elliot Tepper, of course, emeritus professor at Carleton University, uh, majoring, of course, in the American political scene. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.